Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. Today we're going to be discussing VC investment into fintech and what the future looks like for it. Fintech funding has been increasing year on year in 2018 and 2019 smashed records for investment, especially in the UK. Uh, but now it's beginning to decline potentially around the world. What does that mean for the industry? Is it a blip? Is it something serious? Is fintech coming to an end? Uh, to help me find the answer to that question, along with many others, we have some fantastic guests. Uh, so first up is Nick Sando, who is a fintech investor over at Octopus. How are you doing, Nick? I'm very good, Simon. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, of course, we've got uh, Jan Rancher, who's partner Anthemis. How are you doing, Jan? Very good, Simon. Thanks. No, thanks for... I seem to keep seeing you at airports. I could see you in person somewhere <laughs> and else. And randomly, right? <laughs> yeah. Random airports. Random airports around the world. You're always traveling. That's where the entrepreneurs are. How yeah. random are these airports? Yeah. <laughs> so it's more the encounter. Though. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> it's like I'm stepping out of a plane. He's going on his own plane, and we're on the tarmac literally once yeah. it happens. Your own plane, Simon. <laughs> but before it gets too weird, of course, joining us as well is um, Vinoth. I don't know how to say your last name. Jayakumar. Thank you, Vinoth, uh, who's Principal and Investment Director at Draper Esprit. Is that That's right. Yeah, that's correct. Well, it's actually just Investment Director. It's the same thing. (laughs) Same thing. All right. Welcome to the show. Let's get started. Oh, and just so I don't forget, I've got, of course, a shout out to our friends over at Finnovate. Finnovate Europe is in Berlin on the 11th and 13th of February, and it's built around live seven-minute demos of the latest fintech innovations. Fintech Europe, of course, as you guys know, is the continent's premier fintech event. Uh, You can network with more than 1,200 senior-level attendees. More than 50% of those are from financial institutions, and you can gain insights from 150 expert speakers who will be sharing their insights on the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovateeurope.com and quote VIP code 11FS for a 20% discount on your registration. That code is 11FS. Of course, that's the VIP code. All right, let's get on with the show. So before we jump into um, kind of the fintech market more generally, as we're recording this, the news has fairly recently broken that uh, Visa has acquired Plaid, the open banking company. And I want to go around the room and get your hot take, like 90 seconds. Uh, And Nick, I'm going to start with you, 90 seconds on. uh, What does the Plaid acquisition mean for the market, for Visa, or what do you think is most interesting? Uh, so I think it's a big tick for uh, banking infrastructure, um, more so in terms of the sort of visa relationship. I think if you're looking at like Twitter and some of the multiples that are being uh, theorized, they're in like the 50x range, which is obviously extremely high. And I think it sort of shows the fact that Visa is quite concerned that potentially open banking and this sort of direct integration can remove them from the loop. And I think this is a real statement to say, no, we're, we're going to stay the network behind the, the payments. Interesting. So it's like a defensive play. Defensive, they'd say, they'd say opportunistic. Um, <laughs> but, and I think it's actually probably both of those. Interesting. Uh, how about yourself, Jan? What, what do you think when you saw this? Yeah, I think it, you know, big validation of open banking in general, because you look at Visa statement and what they released on the opportunity space, it was both data and payment and very oriented around working with startups. I think there is a big battle behind the scene around the existing players in financial services wanting to work with startups, and that's one big win for them in that end. Excellent. And Vinoth, how about yourself? What did you think when you saw the Visa Plaid announcement? I, I would echo uh, Nick's sort of sentiment, where, which is that we, we've we seen an increasing amount of investment go into what we'd call sort of the back end of banking. Mm. And this is not just validation of that, that segment in its own, but it's also proof that actually the big players such as Visa and MasterCard are worrying about their reason for being. Like, are they going to be relevant in a world where there will be no longer cards? 
that might be true in like a long time from now, but they're thinking about what the future looks like. And to your point about the multiples, you know, I, I actually had a look, they put out a they put out a little piece of analysis of it on their investor relations thing. They don't disclose revenue and all that stuff, but if you kind of do a bit of an extrapolation, it's somewhere between thirty and fifty x. Wow, and that's that's incredible. It's like saying that actually we are saying that this is so far into the future that we're paying for it now. The uh, the old saying that a strategic investment is one that doesn't make sense on a spreadsheet seems to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite possibly true. Um, it, so it, there was something I saw about as well about uh, how the European model is different from the US model, and Visa has always been sort of um, informally seen as a branch of US government influence um, as a card network. Is there something interesting about how Plaid is so so very different to what we've seen in Europe, or do you think that those models will stay different for some time, Nick? Uh, I. Th- you know, I think Plaid and Visa are quite similar in, in what they do. So they both have like, you know, really mm. strong network effects. Um, Plaid's being it just allows developers, you know, to build financial products really quickly. And Visa being that they can um, obviously empower people to take credit and take uh, payments instantly. And I think the network effects are so strong. And if you look at Visa's multiple two, it's extremely high. And I mm. think they're very similar in the power of network effects. All right. Well, that finishes our hot take. So stepping back then, let's uh, let's look back into your sort of uh, your calendars, your time hops. And uh, I'm going to ask Jan first and foremost, when do you think fintech became a thing? Like, when do you remember going, ah, fintech? Like, it was a term that wasn't really used. What was it, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Like, no, what was... I think, well, fintech as a term is probably 2010, 2011. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's about the time, I think. And before that, it was like nothing. I mean, it didn't exist as a term. And I think the term is, it was technology. I mean, financial services are where technology plays and startups and everything, right? FinTech as the second wave is probably, as a term, appeared after the startups. Because if you look at, you know, Betterment, it's 2009, 2010. Lending clubs, middle of crisis. So all of these things were FinTech before the name existed. I think the real big naming happened in 2010, 2011. Interesting. Nick, what drew you to being involved in and around fintech? Uh, I think, you know, it's one of these markets um, which is so large that it can produce billion pound companies year in, year out, right? And that's pretty rare, especially in the UK alone. Um, And fintech seems to be one of them. So I think when you see something like that in a seemingly friendly regulator, Right, I think that's a great recipe for investment in growing companies. We like recipes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Vinod, how about you? Same question. I mean, what do you think is the attraction to fintech at the moment? It seems to have a lot of buzz and hype around it. Certainly, um, I remember maybe five years ago, it wouldn't be something that you'd see Andreessen Horowitz blogging about. Now it seems to be all they talk about. Like something's flipped. I think out of curiosity, actually, on the way here, I I googled the origins of the word fintech. It turns out and I think this might be one take on it, turns out it was invented by Citicorp in 1993, when they set up a thing called the Financial Services Technology Symposium. And so financial technology just got shortened to fintech. And uh, so this is, is I think, the New York Times take on it. That's a lovely bit of history, though. Fun fact, fun fact, right? Uh, I think if I think about my own personal interest versus uh, that of Draper Esprit's, we found that almost in everything that we invest in, you're either you're touching money. And when you touch money, it either costs you money or you make money. Mm-hmm. And so you can peel those layers back to think about how that influences how we live. And to Nick's point, it's just fundamentally huge. There's just no way of kind of taking that apart. And so for us, it remains a key area for, of investment. 
Cool. I mean, there's a lot of attraction and interest in fintech right now. So I guess, uh, do you think then it will continue to be attractive, Jan? Do you think it's just getting started? Are we 1% finished or are we like 99% done? Go on, oh, Jan, I, predict the bubble. <laughs> no, I don't. And I, you know, we're just barely scratching the surface of most of this. Because mm-hmm. I think, fin- I mean, financial services is a huge piece of the, I mean, it's basically your, your financial services like is an intrinsic part of any working society, right? You need a way to exchange uh, value. And, and, and so we're, we're just scratching the surface. There is a lot of things that haven't really been touched on in insurance. There is a lot of things at the core infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of the things that will emerge on top of the new infrastructure that we haven't seen yet. So I think my view is we're really, really still early. And uh, maybe people tend to think we're further along than we are in many ways. And the penetration rate of any large successful fintech is very small. Wow. Uh, I, I'm seeing nodding from around the room. I mean, do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I, to this, Jan touched on a really interesting thing, which is that a lot of investors, because we live, we're, I, I don't think we're in a bubble, but we do live in a bit of a bubble. So we tend to think that There's we like are, a social bubble, right? Yeah. The, it's rather than the, the capital. Um, yes, indeed. And so we, you know, when we see a Revolut put out uh, a press release about how many users they have, or a Monzo, or an N26, or even TransferWise, you tend to think that actually you're much further along than where you truly are. Because is, when you is think it about valuation penetra- and user metric vanity rather than revenue and, and sustainable business. Maybe revenue too, but more about mm-hmm. just penetration, just how yeah. big are we in relation to the wider world? Uh-huh. It's, you know, it's all less than a percent. And so you still have, you're scratching the surface. So it's less Bad than 1% finished. Uh, absolutely. It's a pretty interesting um, perspective. How do you feel about this, Nick? So completely echo that. Um, you know, I always... As a fintech investor, you're shocked when someone hasn't heard of Monzo, but then you realize yeah. that you're actually in a minority of yeah, people yeah. who've heard of the, you know, Monzo Revolut, all of these challenger banks. I also think that there's sort of a just a circular reference, if you will. So if you look at the, you know, legacy infrastructure, and then I, what I would say is the market leaders who say they're replacing that legacy infrastructure, and I won't name names, but they're starting to look like legacy infrastructure in their in their own right. Mm-hmm. So you know, the people who are, who've, who who have done the banking platforms to date for the large banks. And now you're seeing new exciting companies who, are, who say that they're replacing all of that, right? And it We're keeps replacing going back the and replacers. Replacing yeah. the replacers. And I think there's actually a lot of validity to replace the replacers. And some banks have got it wrong using the wrong core banking platforms. Oh, wow. So that core banking space is interesting to you? Yeah, big time. Mm. Big time. Yeah. Um, 11FS has got its own core. Yeah. Am I correct in saying yeah. that? That is correct. 11FS Foundry, yeah. Um, and uh, that does a lot more stuff besides it. But that, this show isn't about that. There's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff on yeah, the website yeah. <laughs> that you can find out and we can chat later about. But yes, absolutely. Um, we we think, absolutely yeah. believe, though, that the core infrastructure inside of a bank is, is mission critical. And I think... Yeah, if you're going to compete, um, David, the our CEO, always talks about the scene uh, in Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen's race, yeah. in which every day you have to go twice as fast just to keep up with yesterday, and the market is getting faster and faster. And if you look at how this is translating for banks, it's meaning that their IT budget is going up, and they're investing in their IT yeah. budget to try and drive out costs, and it's having the opposite effect. And the competitors have a cost advantage, but actually that cost advantage, uh, you know, may may only be sustained for yeah. so long. So how do you build those scale and network effects on new technology platforms? It, it becomes really interesting. I think the other piece that maybe is less talked about is the reorganization of the capital stack, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the big pieces that is changing, which is, you know, the there is more of, you know, gray. The capital market piece has increased and is 
targeting market that used to be reserved for regulated capital, such as bank or insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of things happening there that are driving the change on the technology side. So mm -hmm. you look at historically, you can look at Lending Club, you know, P2P Finance was a revolution from a capital stack standpoint. Uh, but also they've now broadened their capital stack. Most lenders use a mix of hedge funds, family offices, you know, alternative capital providers. Uh, and for and listeners so, not familiar with capital stack, just um, yeah, step back. Yeah, so I think it's the, the idea that, you know, most of the, for example, lending is a good example or insurance. It used to be that you could only lend or do insurance if you were a regulated bank or yes. regulated uh, insurance companies because you're basically doing a transformation of capital. You're converting deposits or premium yeah. into other products. Yes. Um, and I think what the big change here has been that there is a lot of, capital sitting outside of a regulated bank balance sheet. So whether it's on the capital market, whether it's, you know, hedge funds, family offices and other... The so-called shadow players. banking sector. Shadow banking sector has exploded, right? Yeah. And so part of the change in fintech is driven by the fact that shadow banking is pushing along to directly go to the products, to the lending side or to the insurance side. So on the insurance, insurance listed securities have been growing really, really fast, which is basically insurance by capital market. And I think you, you pointed to something interesting there, which I, I, I want to come back to in a second, because I think that um, that cap market space and that whole institutional space, it's like, it's so filled with dense language, and yet it's so yeah. big, um, yeah. and I think so huge. Um, but I want to just step back to the, um, the, the sort of the business model of, of banking and financial services, which yeah, is yeah. kind of the broader point you're on, Nick, yeah. in that, like, how how do you see, uh, maybe Vinoth as well, do you see that A, existing financial institutions and B, the broader sort of embedded finance space starts to compete? Is it just on cost or are there other things that technology enables me to do? I think the fundamental thing in, in financial services is that the biggest chasm you've got to cross is trust. Mm -hmm. And so the way in you, which you typically try and achieve that is through a superior product, a user experience, and on, on your side, lower costs. So, we, for, I mean, obviously biased because we're investors in Revolut and N26. Mm -hmm. But when we look at kind of how have they built what is today a reasonably sized company, it has fundamentally been driven by that experience and by the cost-income ratios. So mm -hmm. banks today are cost-income ratios of around between 40 and 60%, sometimes up to 70% with someone like a Revolut or an N26 that comes down to the 10 to 20 range. Wow. Right? And so suddenly you have a, a whole bucket of competitive advantage just by not having to spend as much money. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting point. Um, and I actually think it's falling. So if, I think if you gave me, this is bullshit, 500,000 pounds, I think I could almost set up a, a, a pretty decent challenger bank using all the existing SaaS providers out there. Yeah. And I think what that means is that now you can target very much more niche areas of the market, and if you were like vertical banking style. So potentially, I could go build a bank that caters directly to like what landlords need or what physical trainers need. And I yeah. think that's really interesting because now, I, if you look forward, I think you'll see challenger banks emerging, very targeted and hopefully growing out. And that's really because of what we're not talking about the cost. That hyper niche becomes a possibility. You almost have the the platform infrastructure enabling those hyper niches. Yeah, and it just wasn't possible like five, ten years ago at all. It, you know, you'd be crazy to build a bank for that smaller segment, but now it's possible and you can do it quickly. 
the cost of starting a business in recent decades has dramatically reduced. So what I'm hearing is that the cost of uh, starting a financial services company has dramatically yeah, reduced. Yeah, as long as you don't have to hit the banking requirements, you can be e-money, and obviously that comes with its own stuff, then I think that has dramatically reduced. It, it's really powerful. So is it just a, a cost play or are there new revenue plays out there? Are there, are there unserved kind of revenue pools that you see? I, I, I mean, I can say that, for, for, for example, just watching what Revlon and 26 are doing, They've sort of invented the, the subscription model mm-hmm. to financial services, the, sort of the Amazon Prime of financial services. There is almost no reason why anybody in the UK, for example, should need to pay for banking. It's historically been free on the retail side. Yeah, it's very UK-specific. It right? is all UK's, free banking pieces. It is unique very to UK. U- but you still have large swaths of users of a Revolut or a 26 paying for it. Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? So that is, I think, the fundamental question about trust. Mm. Have you now got a product you can use and know that it will not let you down? Have you got a product that works seamlessly? Yeah. Does it fit in with the rest of your life and how that works? Yeah. And that's, I think, the piece that's being Revolut's sold. got a great, like, just to give an example of that, like Revolut has travel insurance, right? My travel insurance came up for renewal. I pay, like, X amount per year on an annual basis. With Revolut, you just flick a button on, it tells your location. Anytime you're out of the country, you pay on a daily rate. Like, that is just... Yep. You know, 10x better than one at a very low cost. And I trust them and I and I totally sign up for that. And I think you're seeing these additional revenue streams coming as a result of that sort of trust layer. Mm. Super interesting. Um, um, that's kind of very retail focused. Jan was briefly a moment ago sort of heading into the more institutional space. So Jan, give us a guided tour of like shadow banking and, yeah. and why you think there's opportunity there. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there is you know, big part of the infrastructure of banking is something that people don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's everything related to fun, you know, custody. Yeah. How do you safe hold securities, cash and other things? How do you make sure this is, you know, safe and controllable and easily to move? Um, there is a lot around, you know, how do we do reinsurance for insurance? For example, how do we distribute massive risk like a hurricane or something like that? And so this is a like literally huge industries that's just getting started in terms of becoming more digital, mm-hmm. having the ability to reduce the cost of transaction very much. And so if you reduce cost of transaction, market become more efficient, more liquid. And so there is a lot about this that is will happen in you know, it's and that's just extending across more and more asset classes. So real estate, for example, what if you can value any piece of real estate real time? Well, wow. like what happens there? Do you know you have a liquid market for real estate or more liquid market for real estate? You can lend against it. You can do a lot of things. So um, that's the for me, that's where I think it's become really interesting. If you reduce massively transaction costs, you improve information and you have less information asymmetry. You have more efficient markets, and that extends across a lot of things. And, and financial markets are something that touch our daily lives. That we just yeah. don't realize it until the f- global financial crisis. Like you don't realize until it goes wrong just how important it is to just about everything in your day to day life. Everyone has a balance sheet. Like yeah. we we don't talk so much about personal balance sheet, but everyone has a balance sheet, right? You have assets on one side, and it, you know, retail is a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. Your cash and your accounts, and you have. Maybe your home, and maybe you have other things like invaluable, like your car, cap- car, and also what studies you make, your capacity for income. Yeah, you know how much you're going to learn through your life, and all these things. And then you have the other side where you have, you know, debt, or maybe you borrowed, maybe you have other commitment in the future. Mm, like and so, you know, that is, you know, a bit of what will change. Managing that will change because those 
things will become more efficient. I like that concept of the personal balance sheet because um, we're seeing, you know, open banking is the term that's thrown around. We, we kicked off the show talking about Plaid and Visa, but uh, there's a move at the moment towards open finance and kind of starting to see more and more of not just the individuals, but companies' balance sheets. I mean, Nick, how do you think about open finance? How do you think about that space? Uh, is, is that something that's going to really radically change my life, your life, and, and how we interact with finance? Uh, I think long term, it could radically improve. Uh, so, if it, you know, we talk about capital being, and a lot of it is locked up, and a lot of capital is locked up and unusable because of the fact that finance isn't very transparent right now. And, you know, central banks need to say, hold on a minute, we can't see what's really going on. So we're going to hold a big chunk of it to make sure if anything does go wrong, you can pay up. And I think if that part of finance becomes more open, you can see those capital requirements falling. And that's, you know, massive amounts of money that is getting released back into the market. Which they can then lend and mm. that can exactly. stimulate economic activity. Yeah. Vinod, how about yourself? Do, when you look at open finance, is that going to transform my life? Is it going to make a difference? Or is it just going to be like, I've got um, a nice little savings app now? Or it, how do you deal with like the cynical banker who's just like, no, this wouldn't make no difference? I think there are there are two elements to how I would think about it. So the first is whether it democratizes access to a particular class of assets, mm. whether that's a, historically been a class that no one's been able to access, like the stuff that Jan Real was referring to, or, yeah. whatever it was. Uh, or you think about what that does from a data perspective. If open finance then now means that everybody's got data that can be shared, and as a result, better products are being built at lower costs, then actually everybody benefits. Mm. But it also puts control back in the hands of the users. And that, I think, is the fundamental piece. That's what Plaid does. That's what the UK and European companies like Yappily and Trulea do. Mm -hmm. And so you suddenly have this shift of power where it's going back into the hands of the people who actually provide the capital, Hmm. the everyday person. So... What do you think then, uh, as you stare into the crystal ball, about the layer of the infrastructure stack? Because um, you know, I speak to some people who think like open banking is just lipstick on a pig. It's just sort of this this small layer over the top. There's other people that are like actually know you need to go deeper in the stack. You know, do you think that there are there is more to do deeper in the stack, Jan, or do you think open banking is kind of the the yeah. route in? No, I, open banking is super interesting in itself because it does create two things. One, it gives as we were saying, it gives user access to that data on a neutral fashion and they can share it with other players and all. And, and that is genuinely unique, right? And when we were early in FinTech, we thought about, you know, give me my bank data as a T-shirt, right? Because <laughs> technically it's mine and should I should own it. Um, but the other side of it is that it creates a new payment channel. Mm. And there is not so many new payment channels created ever. Um, and so that's a new one that's genuinely different. And um, that new payment channel often people refer to as push payments or account-to-account payments yeah. or something along those lines. Do you think that's realistic? Do you think yes. this is uh, this is something that's actually coming, the PISP thing and, yeah. and the equivalents to that? Yeah, PISP is genuinely a new payment channel and is as strong advantages over other payment channels. And what impact do you think that's going to have on businesses, consumers? Like, will I be using that in five, ten years? You will be using it. I think you will less know than it. five ten years. Ah, I think you will be using it, but you don't know it. Interesting. Um, and so what you've done is you've just truncated the cost mm-hmm. and speed. Right. Okay. And it's changed the nature of that. And, and the UK is really at the forefront here because the way it's being pushed with some pushback is app to app authorization, right? Yeah. And that's a behavior that people have because Apple and others have trained them to authorize things on their phone. Yes. If you think about it, you Apple now, the new release, you've been asked to authorize things all the time. Yep. And now the payment is exactly the same workflow. You 
I have the payment prompt, switch to the bank mobile app, being asked to authorize, go back. And that's, a, that's a new, not a new behavior. That's a behavior that people have all the time around. Do you want to share this? Do you want mm-hmm. to do this? Do you want to do that? It's going to be interesting so. to watch. All right, guys, I'm taking a slight um, change of tack. I'm just going to ask a, a more open-ended question. Sort of, um, I'm going to start with Vinoth. Like, what are you obsessed with at the moment? Like, what's, what, have we covered any of those subject areas? What's, what's really getting you interested? Currently, uh, we are deeply embedded and thinking through, what well, like, I guess, what we call the so-called back-end of banking. Mm-hmm. And there are three layers within that that we are specifically spending a lot of time in. One is in fraud, mm-hmm. one is in payments, and the other in core banking systems. Mm-hmm. So we are invested in a few companies, a few of which I can't disclose yet because it's not public. Mm-hmm. But these are the three main areas that we're investing in at the moment. And how about yourself, Jan? What's, what are you obsessed with? Um, many, many things. But the most esoteric one is time. (laughs) (laughs) And so all of this is driven by time. No one agrees what the time is. So it feels like a when question, not an if question. No, no. Time itself. Ah. When does this event happen? What time is it? Oh, right. I see what you mean. Yeah. So event sequencing. Yes. Um, Sort of did we agree that that happened? Did did it definitely happen? Yeah. So as soon as you, you move to digital contracts and things go in and out. Yeah. And though now everyone needs to agree when mm. things happen. Mm. And actually quite diverse That's, set of things. I like that. It's, it's slightly esoteric and yet yes. very first principles. And I love a first principles thought. How about yourself, Nick? What's, what are you obsessed with? Uh, so not esoteric, but i really looking at personalized finance, mm. right? Um, and I think Jan spoke about it around the insurance sector in the beginning too. But I think there's just the level of uh, personalization that is coming into the retail sector, uh, really retail finance sector is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm also um, looking at cross-border payments quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at cross-border payments from a consumer level, it's quite, it seems quite developed, you know, but if you actually look at it from a bank-to-bank level, it's still pretty archaic in mm-hmm. the way that they operate and you essentially have to just follow the sun, right? And, it's, and it basically means there's almost a window um, I'm not sure what the exact time frames are. I think it's like 7 to 12 where mm-hmm. that's the time where everyone in the world seems to be slightly awake and mm-hmm. you can have that. And that just seems so old school and something that should really... Banks call that cut-off times. Cut-off yes. times, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. If you've ever worked in a bank, like cut-off <laughs> times are just... Like the yeah. cut-off time maths of like yeah. how am I going to get a payment to mm-hmm. some far-flung country yeah. uh, is like, wait, so I've got to get it to this bank and then to that bank and then to yeah. that bank and I've got to manage all of their individual cut-off yeah. times and their turnaround times. It's madness. It's absolutely madness. And then it goes one level up because the treasury needs to know yeah. yes. for their own exposure vis-a-vis the repo market, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly. So basically you have an hour before cut-off time is the treasury cut-off time, which is to say how much dollar exposure I have, how much do I need to cover I myself. I believe how much industry is involved in moving money around for banks, whereas compared to like an email that has taken care of all of that for you, and banks can send swift messages at the speed of an email, right? Mm-hmm. Their ability mm-hmm. to communicate is not the issue. It's the ability to do all of the risk and decisioning and yeah. all of that stuff that comes before it. Um, but there is different infrastructure out there now, so it's changing. Yeah, and it'd be great. You know, just There's never been more of a need to connect up these various banks you know, at a, at a global level, and I think someone who cracks that, or someone at least who paves the way to crack that, is going to just such an exciting space to be exciting looking at. times. So then, moving from like ideas to team, like what do you guys look for in a team? What's what's the key for you, Nick? Um, so, because of the nature of, uh, it depends obviously on the, the 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 space that you're investing into. Like, I think retail is a bit different, but mm-hmm. like if you're looking at B two B fintech, right? You, I like to invest in people who have a sort of network set up just because of the nature of who you're dealing with. You're mm-hmm. generally dealing with people who've been in finance for a long time and mm-hmm. they talk a certain language 
And I really value people who've put their hard years in mm. working in finance and have that network set up. That's interesting because there's there's power and ignorance sometimes. But how do you see balance in teams? Sort of like, do you look for a bit of that balance, or is is like an experience a key factor for you? Um, yeah, balance is great, right? Yeah. And if sometimes you find someone with experience who just doesn't have that ignorance, mm -hmm. then that to me is like a really special founder because they can go out and actually speak to the stakeholders they need to, mm -hmm. and not be seen as that sort of naive mm -hmm. young team. Is there something less about ignorance, but? The strong belief that things are wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I like that way of putting it, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like you believe fundamentally the way things are working is wrong. So it, there's something about that sort of uh, almost provocative uh, and conviction yeah. in, in, no, this is broken. Yeah, and you can be either an insider or an outsider thinking yep. this is broken, and there is two different approaches to that. But you can definitely be an insider and believe this is wrong and broken. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that's, you know... Scratching your niche is a little bit too lightweight sometimes to describe, you know, in finance, sometimes you have you people could, that believe this is wrong. And I think that's where fintech originally from, right? Simple, it's, it's people who are insiders who the are people obsessed. people at Simple, you know, the first tagline of Simple is a, a bank that doesn't suck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was the official tagline. Right. But then you look at the Collison brothers who, you know, didn't have deep finance history. Mm -hmm. You look at Jack Dorsey who doesn't have deep finance history there are some mega successes that don't have that but yeah. then what's the broader team i think it's this idea of this undivided obsession mm. and so if you jack dorsey surrounds himself with people who are who absolutely care about that one thing and they do it really really well mm -hmm. uh and it, this is not a new philosophy it was kind of i guess made famous by steve jobs mm -hmm. Uh, but when you think when we think about founders and we we have these ongoing conversations and all of us here will be having ongoing conversations with various founders throughout the day, you get a sense of like how people are thinking. You get a sense of like, you, and that doesn't necessarily come across the first time. If you ask a slightly gray, nuanced question, turns out they've got three slides on it because they never showed you. <laughs> that tells you that they've been obsessing about this thing and they knew that it was something that they wanted to solve in their mind. <laughs> Not for the sake of some VC, but for the sake of their own intellectual curiosity. Yeah. I think that is that stands out for me. Wow. It's an interesting, almost uh, ephemeral quality that, that sort of seems to stand out for all of you, but it's, it's a consistent thing. So how do you think about um, the need for sort of technology skill sets in, in a founding team? Because um, one of the stats that Chris Skinner talks about a lot is that like maybe 4% of senior executives at banks have ever held a role in technology. And if they held a role in technology, the chances were it was more administrative than, than technical. There are some notable exceptions, you know, the um, former... Um, the current CEO of BBVA, I believe, Carlos Torres Villa, who started his life as a programmer. There are definite exceptions to that rule without question. But do you think that technical knowledge married with that obsession is key, or do you think actually you can major on one or the other? Um, I personally would say you can probably major on one or the other if you have a balanced co-founder or team to mm -hmm. support you. Um, I just don't think you need to know everything necessarily, um, but it's definitely a bonus. I don't know, Jan, what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I think you need... A little bit of everything at some point to make it work, and and I think you need, you know, have at least the intellectual appetite to understand yeah. technology. Outside of team and product, what else do you look for when you're looking at a business at, at the high level? Like, what's going to make it grab your attention? To assume team and product are tick tick. What's what's the next thing? I'm sure we we probably all look at, have a similar you know ish view um, because we all invest in similar ish companies. But I think 
Persistence for me is really important if you're in the finance sector, um, mm. just because of the nature of the sales cycles. We found <laughs> it's them almost to be belligerent, persistent, incredibly <laughs> long. And if you, I call it brilliant. If you're ignorant <laughs> to that or <laughs> not aware, aware of that, yeah. a lot of puking it's, along the way. Exactly, and you need that persistence, and you need to have shown that. Um, and if you, I think it's just you, you either learn it the hard way or you have it already. Mm, that's exciting. I suspect the unspoken one we missed was market. Yeah. If there, if, if if it is an obvious market and exists, mm. most times we're actually investing in things that there is no obvious market. And, and how do you think about that? Because I guess constantly, it, that's if there's no obvious market, you've got to potentially you know, go justify that to an investment committee. And how do you take people on that journey? Is well, that thesis driven, or is it? It, it has to be thesis driven. Uh, and so, what tends to happen with say with Draper Esprit is we do a lot of that thesis-driven work up front. Mm-hmm. And so when we get... Uh, this, I think this is a word that gets bandied about in Silicon Valley called the prepared mind status. <laughs> when you show up in a room and there are all these people who help you make a decision, that they're prepared with the jargon, with the with the ideas that you've been thinking about for a certain period of time, with the data that shows it. Mm-hmm. So when you come up with this idea and you say, actually, we're not really sure what the market size is, you don't really need to solve for that. What right. you need to be able to do is stretch your imagination to as far as it goes with between you and the founder and that for that to come across to the investment committee. Mm. Then you then you have you know the the world is your oyster. Interesting uh, concept to deal with. So, um, kind of on that talent space, just handing back to that a second. Um, there's, I guess, we've come through an interesting cycle in uh, fintech in the last five years, certainly in the UK, where um, the you know there's now a. Uh, former Monzo founder who's left to go run his alpaca farm, yeah. Paul Rippon. Um, there's others that have gone to build new businesses, either in food delivery or in or in the the, the kind of the, the other sectors in, in uh, kind of property and rental markets. Do you think we're going to see a recycling of talent? Are we going to see a Monzo mafia? Or are we going to see other mafias start to emerge? And um, does that instantly generate nerd heat, or is uh, you know is there something else out there that we should be looking for? I, I think there is just an experiential piece of it like there is not so many high growth fast startups in Europe yet mm-hmm. and so having that experience is still a rarity here um, it's something that you have a lot more talent on in in Silicon Valley where people have done three mm-hmm. or four of those and so they're experts to go super fast on something we don't have that yet in Europe and I think the big change is we're going to have more of that and that's compounding growth like having that experience is something you can learn or anything right? I think it's every VC's secret weapon I mean, if I, if we look at uh, people who've kind of, I think the one that got talked about a lot was the so-called Love Phil Mafia. Mm-hmm. There, were, the, there were a group of founders who founded different companies that came together, that became Love Film, and then they went off after the success of Love Film, which they sold to Amazon, to create other companies. Alex Shesterman, who's now running Kazoo, previously founder of Zoopla. They got the guys at Tails, dog food yep. subscription. You got the guys at Grace, snacks subscription. This is all this breakout Glean winners. now to the... Yep, uh, that's it. Yeah. Graham Bosher. So we'll, what we all do is we kind of track our founders and see what they do next. But again, the cycle is seven to ten years. So VCs are basically weird founder stalkers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I, I can't continually call the, the weird the, founder stalker yeah. the company. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the other, With pride. But the, I think the other big change is going to be that you're going to have operators. Like mm-hmm. you're going to have people that are not going to be founders, mm-hmm. but uh, that have done it as an operator. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Right. And that's the right. big. That's the big success of Silicon Valley. The founders are important, but you get outsiders and insiders as founders. Plaid, former Bain people, um, yeah. you know, Collinson, first company. Um, but you do get operators that can say, look, you're 50 now, you want to be 200 next year. 
I've done this two times, three times. And there's a talent space there from a VC perspective of knowing who those operators are and knowing yeah. when a founder and, or an entrepreneur needs Yeah, needs I completely agree. And it's, you know, it's a real tick if, if you meet a company and the founder uh, says, you know, I was able to attract the head of, ex-head of growth at, say, a Revolut, right? That is a, that is a huge tick box because it means they are able to sort of sell their vision and also... And you, build a team. Exactly. Um, so that you'll see that as well. It's an interesting one to think about as as businesses start to to scale out their, their challenge changes. How do you think about the support that um, fintech companies need specifically as they're scaling? Because they're sometimes they're regulated, sometimes they're not. What would you say the nuances are for a fintech company? Compliance. <laughs> the C word. No, the C word is important. A lot of these things, if you want to extract value, you're going to end up being regulated in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 being able to navigate that world. Um, it's a bit of a superpower. It's, it's a bit of a superpower. Mm. Um, and I think that's maybe one thing. And it's hard to find compliance people with startup experience because, again, like we didn't have many compliance requiring startups before. So it's a new field that's emerging in many ways. Startup uh, people who've worked in compliance that can work up, work in a startup without their head exploding, I think, yeah. because of the lack of control, I think is, is always an interesting challenge to find. Yeah, definitely. There's, you know, there's positions which are you see it more and more on fintechs and you do another like head of risk and risk officers and compliance officers and all these sort of roles that you don't necessarily see as much on direct-to-consumer business, for example. Interesting. Uh, how do you think about um, Europe versus rest of world? You know, looking at the U.S. market, it seems like challenger banks are making their way into the U.S. market, but there's we're a very on, different We're on model. top. Did you see the Tech Nation report that came out this morning that we've, we're the fastest growing now we've ever taken U.S.? So. You mean the U.K., part U.K. and part U.K. industry-funded body said the U.K. <laughs> yes. is doing well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to <laughs> shout out to Tech Nation. Don't you Love believe everything you read on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Jan. It's, uh, I think it, they're, we invest in both uh, locations. Um, and I think they're really interested because the regulatory environment is so different. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the regulatory and market are so different. So you have a unified, open, fairly lenient capital market in the U.S. And you have private pensions. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of you know, consumer money going there. And you have a system that's built on credit that credit scoring, mm-hmm. where the UK might be alive, but the credit scoring is illegal in France. Wow. So Europe is completely, not, from, a, from a culture and regulation standpoint, Europe is very different on it's the capital different market yeah. and credit. Europe is very unified in terms of the passporting, open banking, and all these things that require state licenses in the US. You almost have a reverse picture. Like you need to, to do payment in the US, you need to do, you know, Licensed by state. To do payment in Europe, you need any money license and you can passport across. But do you see infrastructure in the US starting to solve some of those problems as well? Because I, I look at the Bontex, the Synapses, the Galileos, yeah. like uh, Marquettas, all of those players starting to maybe solve some of that. But you still, I mean, yes and no, because you're still limited. Like you can, they only work until they reach a certain size because there is an exemption for smaller banks around how much uh, interchange you can take. Yes. Right? So once you re- if they're successful, the model will have to change because because they're going to be hit by the interchange change. Yeah, um, and this is Durban Amendment. Stuff. Yeah, Durban Amendment. So That's nerd stuff if you're listening. So, Durban Amendment and the U.S. Yeah. market are absolutely key. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on U.S. versus uh, Europe and, and other differences? I think what, one difference that is felt by founders who've tried to start business in the U.S. is you look at the U.S. and you think it's one country, right? But really, it's like 50 countries in one because of the fact that the state regulation varies so much. Mm. And it's very difficult to just sort of expand at rapid pace across the U.S. And 
although la- Europe is composed of different languages, um, I think there's a lot of benefit and from expanding across the European markets too because of what Jan was talking about, which isn't really the case as much in America. Interesting. How do you think um, narrative plays into a lot of the, the fintech uh, kind of investment space? And uh, you know, do, uh, is there a bit of trend um, and groupthink happening inside of uh, a VC bubble? And do you think that if we had a couple of down years in terms of headline amounts invested into fintechs, that could create a uh, an, an impact on LPs, that creates an impact on VCs? How do you think about that? Possibly there's always going to be a bit of an overhang of what that overriding narrative is. It does, it, it does boil down to the nature of the relationship you have with the entrepreneurs you're investing in and mm-hmm. also with your own investment committee and therefore the LPs. Mm-hmm. And so if there is, there's a constant flow of information in terms of how you think and why you think the way you think, then at least you're avoiding the need to have to adjust for that because you are starting with original thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, insofar as it is possible, you'd want to be doing that, but it's not always possible. Excellent. And uh, as we uh, kind of just re-gaze to the future, um, do you see uh, other geographies starting to um, take the mantle away from the UK? Is the UK post-Brexit in in a bit of a precarious position? Will we see more interesting fintechs coming out of the UK? Uh, I'm I'm probably more of a bull on this than I guess some of my my peers, but I don't see Brexit having that material an impact on us, especially the early stage fintech market. I don't, I think you've seen it doesn't seem to be really spooking the investors uh, at this stage. Yeah, I think it will. Not. Yeah. I would say that I think we still think about uh, Europe as Europe. And, and so we're as bullish as we've ever been. I mean, fundamentally, the single, you know, Jan's point earlier on, this, the thing that's been driving quite a lot of the innovation, especially in the regulated side, is how forward-thinking the FCA have been. Mm-hmm. Versus the SEC, it's just completely worlds apart. And so even in Europe, in, you know, we are far ahead and so that in itself has enabled innovation and passporting rights through Europe. And uh, Although we don't know how that's going to pan out now. Yeah. We don't know what that's passporting question, would look right. like. So, But you know. Jan, do you, how do you reflect on that? Because has the UK done a good job of appearing to be um, really open to innovation? Or is it genuinely sort of easy to deal with in terms of a regulatory perspective? I think they genuinely have been ahead. Yeah. And, I, and I think the, and the interesting side effects of that, if you look at the regulatory split in the world, is the rest of the world against the US. Mm. Because the inspiration for a lot of the regulators outside of Europe is the UK and the NPS and the European framework, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at what's emerging in India, Australia, Japan, Australia, yep. Singapore, they're not the same. Like it's not to overstate it, but they're yeah. inspired by the European framework. They're not inspired by the US framework. Mm. And so I think the interesting piece is going to be a lot of is around the world will be shaped. It seems to be on the has to be shaped regulatory wise by Europe. Europe. And same in South America, like Brazil has passed some PSD2, has the intention of passing PSD2-like yeah. regulation, Mexico. And the inspiration is, is definitely there. So I think the the side effect is really around that. When uh, it was announced that there were a lot of UK challenger banks like uh, and European challenger banks like N26 and uh, Monzo and Revolut and others looking at the US market specifically, there was a bit of a backlash of like, no, no, we've got some homegrown ones. Like We've got challenger banks here too, and we're a very different market. Um, do you think, A, that the uh, European challenger banks can make us get significant traction in the uh, US market generally? And do you think that there's other markets where they may have more opportunity? Why don't you? Why so there's a, there is a there is a long there is a long tail of uh, countries where you can have certain amounts of penetration and you can create a big 
market using mm-hmm. that alone, and that's the Revolut model. Mm-hmm. The Monzo model is to focus on particular countries to create deep penetration into mm-hmm. those countries. So I think they can both exist. Uh, but which one works out better depends on your cost model. Mm. Do you go in with a card first issued by, say, a wire card, capped on you know 20 basis points and consumer interchange? It all depends on kind of how you think your initial revenue models are going to be. Mm. I think that unit economics piece get, changes market by market and, and changes your yeah, assessment. And the culture is different. I think we'll, we'll see evolution of the products in the U.S. I mean, fundamentally, if you look at some of the target market, Henry's in the U.S. are credit card cons- consumers. Mm. You know, they're cashback, reward-based behaviors, and which Asia. don't exist here. Like, yeah. it, literally, very different behavioral. Which is why when you see the, the challenges that are built there, Chime is very different looking, failing, and but also... And targeting point, a different population. So yeah. they're going for, you know... Low to middle income, yeah. Middle income, lower income population, because it's a whole different game, right? It's a credit card game at the upper end in terms of revenue, and it's a... It's a cost game at the lower end in terms of, you know, the, the banking itself. So I think that's going to be the interesting piece is how much they they evolve. I think one of the things we tell founders when they want to go from Europe to the U.S., we tell them, like, think of it like China. Mm. Like, you have assumptions about cultural knowledge that comes from speaking English, watching mm. movies, and all these things. So you have kind of the belief that you know the U.S., but you have to go there almost thinking, okay, if you were going to China, you wouldn't say, I understand things. You would go there and be, like, open-minded, open-eyed. Uh, or I like advice tend to be advice. like think of it like China you go there and you're open minded open eye like, and you've got to learn you've got to um, learn. you're in learning mode instantly yeah. I, I like that piece about advice um, what what advice or what's your plea to entrepreneurs uh, out there Nick what's, what's the one thing you find yourself having to say the most uh, I would it's probably a, I mean this is obviously I'm a VC so I'm saying this with my VC hat on which is how it will be perceived but raising large amounts of money early on and at quite high valuations. And just because I think that in the beginning, it's it's probably fine. They can go find it. But I'm seeing more and more that founders are putting themselves in a bit of trouble, especially in fintech, by taking a little bit too much at too high a price early on. Um, and that is with my VC hat on and off. But, but I think you, you see this, um, Scott Kapoor goes through this in Secrets of Sand Hill Road yeah. and gives worked case studies that, that actually that, that you know, raising a lot of money sounds great until you realize the costs of it in sequencing rounds. And actually, it's a bit of a dark out how funding rounds work until you've been through it, especially as a first-time entrepreneur. Uh, any other thoughts? What do, you, what do you find yourself saying to entrepreneurs the most? You know? I think one of the interesting challenges, we spend most of our time declining investments. Mm-hmm. And so... And in, in those scenarios, typically the question back to us would be, oh, what do I need to do or what shape would I need to look like and, and mm-hmm. when would you invest? You know, Typically, we have entrepreneurs asking whether there should be a specific metric. Is there a revenue number? Is there a user number? Monthly occurring revenue? Or, you know, all of these things. And I thought long and hard about this, but actually I've arrived at this idea that actually success has no stereotype. And so I can't say it should be this or that. Therefore, wow. we will invest. So what I will say is, actually, if you build a product that people really, really want to use, we'll be coming to you. Yeah. Which is how we did Revolut and TransferWise and all the rest of them. So it, it should be that you are relentlessly focused on building the ultimate best product. 
Yeah. You do that and the money will come to you. Yeah. I'd money almost, follows yeah. traction. Traction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'd almost double way. down on that and say that a lot of times when founders ask for advice about what they should be doing to make them more investment worthy, they should be very careful with the advice that they get back from a, a VC or an investor who said no, because they haven't really put that much time into the business, right? And they don't necessarily know what's best for that company. Mm. And it's also their just random point of view about what they think is interesting in the market. Because they're so, not a deep end. So I'd be careful with actually following sort of what should we be better at advice. Oh. Already, and then um, but parting shots. Um, words for incumbents. If you were sitting in an incumbent, you were given the job of head of strategy. What's the first thing you do? <laughs> That's a hard well, question. I was going to say buy plan, but yeah. it's off the table. <laughs> so I look at two things. I have, you know, I have a balance sheet and I have a treasury function, and I know how to do transformation of cap. You know, mm. converting capital, um, transforming duration. Like, but I you might not be able to attract talent. I know, but I'm trying to be. You know, like as what, what, what would I do? What, yeah. what do I have that is unique? And I have, you know, ex- pre-existing distribution at scale. Yeah. Like I have, a, I have a large customer set. So I think, you know, then those two assets, it, it, what it, do I do with them? And you can go very both ways. You can say, look, I'm going to defend my customer base because I have a large customer base. I have a large, you know, brand and I have these things. Or I'm going to specialize around the balance sheet piece. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to become really infrastructure layer balance sheet regulated business. And, and, use and that, I'm going to play to my unfair weight. advantages. Yeah, and use that weight around. And any dissenting views? I might actually do possibly the exact opposite. Wow. Uh, just just not, close the doors. Screw uh, it. <laughs> no, actually, more that I would think about the fact that, sure, I have all the benefits of being an incumbent distribution, balance sheet, treasury, all the rest of it. But actually, if we want to think about whether you're going to remain relevant, into the long term and into forever, then you want to think about what is fundamentally going to be different about the future mm-hmm. rather than using what you have to make it better. Or Because I think doing that, you'd be maybe 10x better at best. But if you think about, oh, actually, are people actually really going to save money in a bank in the future? Mm. Just challenge that assumption. I don't know, right? So but it's asking do, the heretical questions and, and sort of really doing strategy with a capital S. Yeah, because if you don't save money in a bank, you can't lend it, and it's it, it, it looks fundamentally different. Wow. Right, and so what would that product look like? That's so so if I, I, I want a CEO would give me a, a chance to do some moonshots. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it, and and uh, do that without activist investors on your board and make space for it. But yeah, I, I, I can I can almost feel some. Uh, if there's a CEO of any banks listening or heads of strategy, I can feel your pain. So don't worry. Um, but this was a hypothesis. All right, listen, that's that's us out of time. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, Nick? Uh, so they can obviously visit or. Octopus Ventures, they can visit our website. They can follow us on social media and sign up to our newsletter. And if they want to, for some reason, find out more about me, they can go to the Twitter at Sando Nicholas or check out my LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. How about you, Jan? Yeah, so they can same look at our website, Entemis, talk to founders we backed, mm. and talk about us and have unfiltered feedback there. And follow on Twitter uh, at, at techfin, T-E-K underscore F-I-N. I got the name wrong yeah. at the time. I should have gone fintech. <laughs> yeah. um, but always keen to Could have, have sold the handle. You, you, right, right idea, wrong branding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and how about yourself, Vinoth? I'm, you know, draperspree.com and also on Twitter at uh, VinothJ, J for Jay Kumar. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can find me at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. And if you want to join in the discussion, uh, you can find us on social media at Fintech Insiders, uh, or you can uh, find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, YouTube. Just 
just about everything really uh, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we've discussed so just search for us and get in touch and um, as usual please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and if you really love us please leave a review that's all for this week goodbye for now